Self-Discovery Radio. The discovery of self is but a show away. With over 1,800 shows and growing, we bring you those liberating stories that help you on your own life's journey from every single topic you can think of. The only common denominator is authenticity and being in your meaningful purpose. Come and read our new e-book, plus see our discovery store and what wonderful tools we have for you. Do enjoy our shows and don't forget to share. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Their Story Matters. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is Scott Husing. Compact leadership is just leadership, he says. So leadership is by example, leadership is by inspiration, leadership is being there for your people and and seeing what you do and they feel comfortable enough to follow. I don't think it is about so much command or demand, is it? It's about brotherhood, sisterhood, it's about a connection. He's written a book called Echo in uh, Ramadi, and we're going to be talking about that today, what compelled him to write that book, what was it about that particular episode. He's a retired Marine Corps infantry major with 24 years of honorable service, both enlisted as a commissioned uh, officer. During his career spanning 10 deployments, he has conducted operations in over 60 countries. Throughout his numerous deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, Horn of Africa, he planned, led, conducted hundreds of combat missions under the same, uh, some of the most austere and challenging conditions. He is a published author. His upcoming book, Echo and Ramadi, is out in February, the one we're talking about today. It's a 10-month snapshot of a time that changed the face of operations in Battlefield, a captivating story of Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines during the 2nd Battalion of Ramadi. Um, I keep saying Ramadi, I want to put an N in there, but it's Ramadi, in support of the multinational forces surge in 2006. His true life account uh, provides key insights as to what may be um, unfamiliar uh, to the world leaders, but very familiar to those like Scott who have lived it and endured the historical fight. Um, It was written to honour the services and the spirit of his Marines and the families they supported, and it is a tribute to them and the honour to tell the story. Readers will feel the pain, the emotion, the laughter, the intensity and the, the friction, and Scott describes this as an unvarnished detail. So you know, with listening to these shows, that I'm not a pro-war person. I am absolutely, though, um, supportive and celebrative of the soldier that comes back, of any veterans and, and any of our, um, our people that put themselves on the line, the way they come back. Those definitely scarred. If they're not scarred externally, they're scarred internally. And how they keep that brother and sisterhood going in support of one another and how they become an inspiration to us um, and an invitation to actually understand just how far we can go in life. So I do celebrate um, Scott's journey and, and the journey um, of, of his company and everything that he's done. So Scott, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, sir. Now, um, you've recently had an experience of a loss of your father as well, so you're only all too familiar with loss. And with the amount of years that you've been in the forces, I imagine that this um, it has been a multitude of losses along the way. Yeah, it, it has been, and it's part of the, one of the grim aspects, obviously, of my vocation for uh, almost 25 years as a 
leader in infantry units, but uh, it's also something that we prepare for mentally mm-hmm. and learn to learn to deal with along the way. And it's great to be on a show like yours today too, because uh, one of the things I love to talk to people about is how to move move through that. And mm-hmm. really, the biggest way I've found is through this amazing family of um brothers that uh i not only fought alongside but moreover that the families that supported us while we fought Mm -hmm. and also the ones that continue to support us long after we return home it's just remarkable uh the network uh, and outreach that we continue to have even 10 years after we returned from that battle of ramadi in 2006 and 2007 so i'm never never not inspired by these people that continue to support us um makes a big difference fought, doesn't it it does it really does and when when we fought uh during that deployment that i wrote about in echo Nomadi, i always had this sense of being protected and there is a sense of protection physical and and uh psychological um having this company of 250 U.S. Marines, the best trained warfighters that, that uh, you know, walk this planet around me. And it was this giant yet lethal protective bubble that kept me safe as their commander as I led them uh, day in and day out during the, the fighting in the deadliest city of Iraq. But to this day, Sarah, I still feel that sense of protection, that bubble mm-hmm. uh, of of my marines and their family because we still communicate and we still stay connected and it's through that connection and through communication and really taking care of our own which is is not just a bumper sticker for right. the united states marine corps we truly do take care of our own unlike any other organization that i've experienced in in my lifetime well, you know, so that, that is actually what draws me to, to you guys is the fact that many have been let, let go by government programs and many, as we can see, so many vets end up on the street or, you know, end up in the drug world as an escapism. But it's what it really has drawn me to all of you is the fact of how you step up to help each other. You know what each other needs. You understand what you've all gone through. You know what you need now in order to embrace a, a totally new life. But, you know, obviously with some battle scars along the way. And that support and that celebration of each other, which isn't just about you guys, it's how you extend it out into the community and become a symbol of 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 strength, of courage, of hope for others. So whatever they're going through, they can look at you guys and go, if you can go through that and still smile and still step up and still be together as a unit, then, you know, that is something I can find within me. So this is what I celebrate about what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm also extremely proud that I'm the executive director of a certified nonprofit called Save the Brave. And it is a organization that is committed to connecting veterans through outreach programs to build strength of character. And the genesis of the whole program was from one of my junior Marines, Nick Velez, who started this organization in 2015. He was one of my junior Marines, young 19 year old kid uh, who has grown up very quickly 
not only in the Marine Corps, but afterwards is now a successful businessman. But he brought me on board to lead and help mature the organization. And it's, it's through the network of Marines and the, the ability to connect through charity and, and really inter, interweave all the organizations that are out there to help support veterans that are returning home. We've just been extremely successful because our main goal is to always stay connected to the veterans. And we're the type of organization that none of us on the board of directors, none of us in the organization take a single penny. Everything that is donated, anything that is raised from funds goes directly to support veterans that are struggling with PTS because they do struggle. Oh yeah. And everybody has, has a way of coping in, in dealing with the loss, um, dealing with the sacrifice that they endured and seeing some of the most unimaginable conditions of war at a time when there was great uncertainty, but most certain danger. And for these guys to process that, one of the things I've realized through my writing and through speaking to veterans groups is at the time, Sarah, in 2006, when I led these Marines, I was a pretty seasoned captain. Uh, I was a prior enlisted Marine which means I enlisted with the boot camp and then I went to college and then I got my commission as an officer, but I was around 30, 34 years old and I'd already had multiple combat deployments under my belt. And I didn't look at these guys in, in the light that I do now. After I wrote Echo and Ramadi, I noticed a trend as I wrote the characters of all my Marines and I did over 75 uh, interviews with my Marines and their families is the average age of these young warriors is 22. Mm. And I thought to myself, you know, I was 34 when I dealt with this and I'd already been to combat several times. And, and what I saw and how I processed that was vastly different from what I was expecting from these young guys, because I didn't see the 20 year old kid. I saw the sergeant I saw the corporal of Marines and I expected them to do what what was they were ordered to do. And they did it. They did it flawlessly. But it took me some time and maybe a little Asian and wisdom to really understand that uh, they are a, a very unique group of, of citizens that, that take on this immense responsibility. And every time I tell that, I, I'm more and more proud of them. Yeah, because, you know, 22, it's, you know, what experience have they had of life, you know, and here they're thrown into life and death situations. You know, at 34, you got some life under your belt, you know, and it was a, you know, true decision. And because obviously life, life teaches us so much uh, that you're going to bring to the table. You know, these young guys haven't really had that under their belt yet. And yet here they are thrown into that. And yet you find such maturity with them. Do you think that is because of that kind of brotherhood feeling where everybody knows they can rely on each other? I think it is. I think there's something to do with the ethos of the Marine Corps itself, of of the military. And I, I will say this, it's not exclusive to the U.S. military. Um, Canadian forces, uh, our allied brothers that, that we fought alongside, there's a, there's a shared bond mm-hmm. with people that train and, and endure and, and go through some of the, the, the worst things that 
they can see that humanity has to offer. So there is a shared brotherhood in each of the service branches, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere. It, it prepares individuals to, to deal with that. Mm, which, of course, everybody needs that kind of support, and everybody's going to adjust and adapt to it in different ways. You know, sometimes you have people, and they're full of the bravado. You know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and then they get to the battlefield, and they find this isn't anything like my Nintendo or my Xbox. You know, this is uh, totally and utterly, uh, you know, different. Um, and the requirement not only to take orders, but also to completely think on the spot, to react in that moment, because sometimes it's literally a split second, isn't it? There is no time. You just have to act. And so that you need that training in you. You need that knowledge in you to, to instinctually know what to do because your life is on the line there. It is. Uh, for for most of the guys that I served with in 2006 in, in Ramadi, they can describe the situation as, Periods of extreme boredom punctuate, punctuated by these intense moments of chaos. Mm-hmm. And as I like to describe as fiction of, of the unknown and, and these highly kinetic environments where they had to make split-second decisions where it wasn't a matter of if we were going to be engaged by the you know, enemy insurgent forces. It was, it was when and how often. We literally could almost set our watches by the number of times we would be engaged in firefights on a daily basis, two, three, four times a day in the city that was just boiling over as a hotbed of insurgency in 2006. It was just all about timing. And mm. that's where we that's where we landed. And we were tasked with one mission when, when we were there. And that was to support uh, the higher command's mission to kill or capture uh, anti-Iraqi fighters and those that were there to, uh, you know, really repress the, uh, the the loving Iraqi citizens that just wanted their towns back. Yeah. I think people forget this, don't they? That they think that this is just a fight between America and, and they don't realize that the fight is, you know, the people of the land are being just as persecuted. I mean, it was very much, you know, in um, in in the Second World War with the Germans. If you weren't on board with the Germans, you were considered the enemy. Um, so, you know, they, I don't think people realize that, you know, all Iraqis are bad. No, it's there's always, as it is with ISIS now, right, you have the extreme forces that are doing the bad, but it's the citizens everywhere that pays the price. It, it is. And I write in my book about... Um, these people, and I'll share with you some of the people that I write about were my interpreters, and um, some people like to write about events and, and, and things, whereas I, I find that's what a newspaper's for. If you want to read about events and things, you pick up a newspaper, but Ekon Ramadi, although it's nonfiction, it really reads like a novel because of the fact that I tell these stories of these young men and, and women and the families and it's about the emotion and the feeling and what they went through. And the example of that, of the local Iraqis, were two of my interpreters, these young 18-year-old kids who had had their homes burned to the ground by the insurgency in Baghdad and decided to join the coalition as interpreters. And they sacrificed so much to help a cause that they knew nothing about 
with no military training, they extricated themselves from college, the life that they knew in Baghdad, and joined the uh, the fight and, and did their part as, as local Iraqi citizens to support us as interpreters. And to this day, I talk about the connection. These two young men attended my retirement ceremony from the Marine Corps in 2013. I'm so proud to say one is now has his second master's degree and is on his pathway to citizenship. He lives in America. The other one became a U.S. citizen and then now an interpreter for the Department of Defense as an interpreter doing the same job that he signed up for originally, but this time he's doing it as an American citizen. So they had so much to lose and they really are a, a segment of what most people don't see is dedicated patriotic citizens of their land that are willing to, to fight, to sacrifice, and really put some skin in the game to make a difference in life. Because, of course, there's no guarantees, is there? I mean, you know, one moment you could be all fine and laughing, the next moment, you know, you're, you're out there, you know, shooting and running for your lives. And it is, it's sometimes, however trained you are, or, or, there is that one bullet that comes from a different angle. And so you really, it's its kind of living on the edge all the time. There isn't any downtime, is there? There isn't any time where I can completely chill out now I know I'm safe because you're on guard all the time. That's a true statement. They Again, there's training for boredom and the lulls in combat are not really what I would say are mission essential tasks. Those are things that you can't really train for, but as a commander, you have to know how to deal with those moments because when the, uh, the Marines are at their highest peak, you have to know how to um, deal with that as well because training for boredom is something you just don't do. The example I use is I could probably take any soldier or Marine and give them a minimal amount of training uh, a, a rifle or a machine gun and some ammunition and get them to go from zero to 60 like a race car in a, in a firefight and engage the enemy with precision and lethality. But the real challenge for a leader, and not just in the military, is to, is to get that person who's at their extreme level to go from 60 back down to zero and still be in control. That's right. the real challenge that I found. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm drawing an analogy, which I know some people are going to go, what? But, you know, um, filmmaking, you know, uh, being an actor on set, it's hurry up and wait. You can sit there for hours. Mm-hmm. You can have a 12, 15 hour shoot and maybe you'll get up there for a few minutes to do your bit. But when you get up there, we're losing the light, action, boom, and that actor has to put it on, two or three takes, it's in the back and then back to nothingness again. And so... In a, in a sense, is that when you are trained to do something and you truly are instinctually tuned in, you can switch it on at any time, right? Because, quote, you know your lines. Well, I wouldn't... <laughs> I know. That's, it's just one that came to my head. <laughs> we, we were never acting. There were no... There were no, no, no. But it's still, it's still the importance of playing the role, the... right? <laughs> right. So, you've got to be... Well, you've got to be, you know, um, when you're on, you're on. You know, there isn't any, I'll get to you in a moment, or I haven't quite woken up yet. I, You're on, right? And you've got to get out there. And as you say, go from zero, you know, to 60 in a split second. And not only mm-hmm. just in, in action and in emotion and in everything else, but in, in exactly 
in that zero to 60, be taking in everything that's going on in your surroundings so you actually know how to react. So it's really a speed dial, isn't it? It, it is. And the great thing about our institution as, as the Marine Corps, and I, and I speak not on behalf of the Marine Corps, but it, it, through my experience in the Marine Corps is in training all of our Marines will never be as hot or as cold or as hungry or as tired or as fatigued as they are in uh, combat as, as they are in training. And that's, that's by design. Right. I think because we take them to such extreme limits in training in combat, when they have all of these inputs uh, to process it's, and again, at such a young age, uh, we do a very, very good job and continue to improve on that process organizationally to make our guys the best protectors, the best warfighters that, that, that we can produce to, to ultimately fix our interests as a nation. Do you find that there are some people that, you know, may do extremely well in training, tick all the boxes off, but when they actually get out there and they're in the reality of it, they just freeze up or they just can't adapt? I, I think there's examples of that. I don't really have any personal examples of that. I like, as you started the show off, uh, one of the things I always have told my men is I, there's, there is no such thing as combat leadership, uh-huh. just leadership. Yeah. You just lead. Uh, I never subscribe to the notion that because one has been shot at or mortared or uh, injured, in, in combat on the battlefield makes better. Sorry, you know, we're losing you a bit then. I, I said uh, leaders lead in any condition, and that's uh, that's how it's designed to be. So it's, it's it's trust, isn't it? Why would they follow you if they if you know you can't lead people if it's a kind of a dictatorship? It's got to be something where they trust you. Then they know that you're asking of them what you're willing to do yourself. And so they trust your judgment. They trust that you're not going to put them unnecessarily in harm's way and that you know what you're doing. And when you've got that trust, that is true natural leadership, isn't it? Leadership isn't just I've got a you know a little badge on my thing that says I can dictate to you. If you haven't got the trust of your men or the respect of your men, you know, you're not going to have that camaraderie. No, absolutely. I always believed in the little things as, as a leader and always leading from the front. And, you know, that was important to me, not only training my Marines, but also the officers in the company of, of what right looks like. And, and truthfully, throughout my career, I had plenty of examples of what wrong looked like insofar as leadership went. And I never wanted to be that guy uh, in front of my officers or, or the junior Marines. Um, I always wanted them to know that at the individual level, they were going to make a difference. And it was important to me to be authentic and never portray myself in the image of some poster boy because I'm, I'm probably the first to admit that I was no Boy Scout, but I did try to lead by example. And I never subscribed to the, the adage that officers needed to know their place, you know, that would suggest that officers shouldn't be seen doing menial tasks only enlisted Marines would have to do. 
and maybe that was because I wasn't enlisted Marine. I was, I was a, what we call a Mustang. I had a little bit of both in me, enlisted and officer. But I was part of a team, and my place was always with my Marines doing what they were doing, period. And that meant if there was gear to be moved, I moved it. If there was a patrol, I was with it. If there was a firefight, I was in it. I never thought... Uh, I was not supposed to be with my Marines and I think that served me well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, probably the the majority of most, most great leaders, um, that we produce in the Marine Corps at every level, uh, from these young 20 year old corporals and sergeants to, to the lieutenants, to, um, all of our senior officers. It's just a tenet of leadership that we all subscribe to. And a necessary one because, you know, it's, um, you know, one moment you, you know, it could be my brother and we're playing around and the next moment we need leadership to know what what's expected of us and what to do. And you can only, you know, you can only be on the ball in that moment if you completely trust, you know, the direction that you're given. And if you don't have respect or trust for that person, you're going to be questioning the choices they make. And that questioning can, can cost lives, can't it? Absolutely. So let's talk about post-traumatic stress. Um, I'm definitely going to be talking to you about Saving the Brave Foundation um, because we've just started a self-discovery community where we are actually are raising money for foundations um, um, so that they can afford services, which we also do have here for all the people that we've interviewed. And, you know, that's, you know, what I think is the most heartbreaking thing is, you know, people coming back from life from any form of trauma whether it's veterans or people in life and we have more post-traumatic stress in the world today whether you're a veteran or not than ever before and uh, I think it's just people are just unable to take what's going on in the world anymore but for a soldier would you say most of the post-traumatic stress is the fact that they had to be on all the time sorry well I don't have a PhD in my law, Sarah, so I don't have a clinical explanation for why individuals in any circumstance can, uh, what they attribute their post-traumatic stress to. And I say post-traumatic stress and I leave off the disorder because I don't really feel that it's a disorder. Uh, I love to quote a great friend of mine who wrote a fabulous article called Post-Combat Residue his name is Adam Walker, and he uses another great analogy of a, of, of a coffee mug that sits on his desk, and the young Marine walks in, and he sees the coffee mug, and it's stained, and it's, it's brown on the inside, and it looks worn out like it just needs to be in the garbage can. It just needs to be thrown away, and they ask him why he still keeps this. And he says, well, it may be stained and have, have some has some residue on it, but that's from years and years of repeated use. I drink coffee out of it every morning, but at the end of the day, it still serves its intended purpose. Mm -hmm. I can pour coffee into it and I can drink it. So he uses that analogy of post-combat residue of this lifetime and sometimes only four years of multiple deployments. These Marines have this residue that is in ingrained in them through what they've seen and what they can't unsee but the residue is there and there's no cleaning it away as hard as he wants to scrub to clean that coffee mug those stains are never going to come out it's just part of what is 
but it's still a useful tool. Right. It still serves its intended purpose every single day. And there's plenty of Marines on active duty. There's plenty of soldiers on active duty right now that suffer from this. And some of them may not acknowledge it. They ignore the signs of the triggers that are that are common to people that suffer from combat uh, um, post-traumatic stress that, that's related to being in a combat zone. And everybody's experiences are different. And as an organization, we never like to say, well, my my PTS is, is better than your PTS right. because I saw more combat or you only saw this. It's not a contest. What triggers that in, in each individual is uh, their their own personal experiences and how they cope with it. And some people cope with it in different ways. Some people lock their doors and check the locks two or three times before going to bed at night. Some sleep with a gun under their pillow. Some drink in excess. Some use drugs. Some exercise fanatically or maintain a really strict diet. Um, whatever they do to control those small things in life, that's what they do to, um, to cope with it. But some of them continue to serve their nation. They continue in their jobs and in the private sector. And they're highly functioning. But it's still there. That residue is still there. And the message that I like to talk to guys about is just understand that it's there. And if you feel those things building up, there are resources that you can latch onto and, and seek help. Um, we never profess to try and counsel guys through our program with Save the Brave. We simply connect them through outreach programs because we feel as an organization that there's no better pill, there's no vaccination, there's no cure that a doctor or right. the Veterans Administrations can prescribe that's any better than connecting with each other, getting together and talking through those shared experiences. And that's what we do. And when we find guys that are involved in our programs through outreach events, whether it's a deep sea fishing trip or a, or a hike or a cabin retreat, we see guys that may need a little more help. We have resources for the guys that have the PhDs hanging on their wall that are, that are psychiatrists and they're trained to deal with this. And we have resources through the government and through the veterans administration that can really help these guys. But, uh, we find that it's just best to get them together and keep it as low stress and, uh, as unregimented as possible so they can just open up and connect with each other. I really have found that that's been the most cathartic process mm -hmm. and the best way for these guys to heal. And one of the great things through speaking and through my writing, it took 10 years, uh, you know, after the fact that I, I wrote this book, I finished this book. It didn't take me 10 years to write it, but the timing was right because over the past decade, it's taken that much time for my Marines to heal. Yeah. I don't think the stories would have been the same that they shared with me. I don't think they would have been able to process it the same. So the timing was really right to tell this story. And it's still very relevant because of what's going on in the Middle East now as we yeah. stand on the precipice of possibly another war in the Middle East with, with ISIS taking control of um, that city uh, of Ramadi in 2015. It's not by accident that they took Ramadi in 2015 when ISIS... Uh, uh, surfaced in the in the Middle East as, as a as a major threat, 
they chose Mahdi because it's the capital city of Alambar province, the largest province in Iraq. So I don't think any of us look back, and, and, and I get a lot of questions along that vein too, sir, of what do you think now? Uh, do you feel like it was all a waste? And I, none of us had a crystal ball right, exactly. uh, with this to look in and say, well, this is going to happen if we don't establish a presence in the Middle East, if we don't build bases like we did in Germany and Japan, this is going to happen. I don't think any of us were too terribly shocked knowing that we didn't leave a significant coalition footprint in, in Iraq that someone, some some bad actor would, would, would take hold of that and take the opportunity to gain ground again that, that we ultimately gave back to them. So that's what we saw in 2015, and it's still boiling over. As we, we have troops in Iraq right now that are, that are still fighting. They're still there. They just unfortunately don't get the coverage in the in the no. popular media that they that they actually should right yes no instead there's another war being stirred up for with korea um and everywhere else yes <laughs> apparently um you know it's i find it very cavalier when you know either politicians or certain people you know just incite another war and they forget about all the people that are going to pay the price um you know the the, the vets um the you know the soldier the young soldier that doesn't come back or the people that come back with different form of wounds you know got to adjust to a different form of life uh, the families you know it's a domino effect and it's you know it's you as a soldier you're not out there although you're trained to kill or to capture that is not the first thing on your mind isn't it you know what you would like to do is you're trying to bring peace to whatever area you're defending you know bring back that equilibrium of of balance um by eliminating the small cause because it's always the small cause isn't it? it's not the big amount of people um well we're trying to we're trying to take care of each other and yeah. accomplish the mission what, whatever that mission is and that could be from the low end of the spectrum of handing out school supplies to to children that need them to to full-scale combat operations with intense kinetic firefights it's, you, you bring up a great point, sir, is that combat is not a natural event. Humans create war, mm-hmm. and often by those who never have to experience the savagery that it encompasses yeah. or, or that heinous that it leaves in its absence, both on the, on the contours and the souls of, of the Marines and the soldiers that fight those wars. And oftentimes, you're right. They are those that sit blindly in pronouncement of others' fate who really will never understand that relentless tide that swells and crashes on, on those who fight for their freedom yeah. in whatever country they reside in. Because our story of Echo Company and Ramadi in the fall of 2006 and, and spring of 07 was really just a story of collective discipline. But it turned out to be this series of events of life-saving vigilance and patience and love and resolve that was um, demonstrated daily by these young Marines who possessed the strongest sense of personal character. And it was just amazing to me to watch them in action every single day because there were periods where they were so connected to each other, unlike anything I've ever experienced, but also connected to those that they were committed to protecting mm-hmm. and, and that was the local Iraqis it wasn't uncommon for me to 
to see them interacting with the kids. And in any any war, in any country, kids are kids are kids. Yes. And I would catch these small glimpses of my young guys handing out chocolate or, or candy to the children at times on a patrol where they peek out of a doorway just to connect mm-hmm. and just to feel human for that split second, knowing that one second later they could be at you know, 60 again. So. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, it humanizes it, doesn't it? You know, what am I here for? Well, you're here to protect these people from a regime that would not only take them over, but threaten, you know, the, um, the world's balance. Um, so you're there just as much for them. You know, unfortunately, other people would just go and take a country. And you're fighting in that country, so therefore everybody in that country must be bad. And it is so far from the truth, isn't it? Because it's always the handful that are the extreme bad, and then there are the they're just as much victims um, on the other side. And it's how do you get people to actually understand, you know, the the humanity behind war? Well, I would have to say we attribute it to our training and our ethoses within the Marine Corps or within the military. Uh, and I, and I say this from the U.S. military perspective, but I've also seen the evidence in other militaries I've trained with, is the, the true warrior ethos of and those core values of honor, courage, commitment, is evident in most services worldwide, legitimate ones, the ones that truly care about being a professional soldier. And they, they enter the battlefield knowing that uh, they're going to fight with honor and they're going to fight with valor. And they're at our level, at the tactical level, uh, we, we are immersed in these cultures that we're sometimes very unfamiliar with, but the human element is always there. Despite a language barrier, mm-hmm. there is that human connection. And, and oftentimes it's a challenge for, for, I would say, younger individuals without that life experience that we talked about earlier on the show is how to, you know, not become too attached, not, not to humanize too much. And that was a real challenge for us in, in Iraq, uh, as we've been fighting for over a decade is finding out who the bad guys were because it wasn't a uniformed enemy. Yes. These were people that lived and milled amongst the general population and used oftentimes brutal, ruthless tactics to achieve their end state of attriting and, and, and killing U.S. and coalition forces. They would blend into the local populace, they would slip into a, a local home, pull their weapons out, shoot at the Marines or soldiers on patrol, go back inside and intimidate the local families, tell them to hide the weapons, and then they would slip out the back door and just blend right back into the population. Right. That was a real challenge for us to figure out who the bad guys were. Ultimately, we did it, and we did it very effectively. Um, and we used, uh, you know, a, a different combination of tactics and methods to do that. But uh, it, it's it's not an easy an easy process on on the battlefield in such a dynamic, fluid environment when you have all of these all of these factors, you know, circling a, a, a unit of 250 Marines, soldiers, and sailors. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, as you said, no uniform. How do you identify the enemy? Um, and and then that also makes you look at you know the innocence always with that mindfulness of you know is this a sheep in wolf's clothing? You know, or wolf in sheep's clothing, because it's hard to know, isn't it? It's also you know that these families can be intimidated into doing things against their will in order to save their families. So there is a kind of the clear black and white. You know that my father fought. Um, mm-hmm. He was a a squadron leader. Um, he'd protect the bombers. He would uh, get people out of countries, etc. But I know at the end of the war, there was you know, there was no talking about it, you know. And I think all of these guys had post-traumatic stress, and at that time, it was just not something. Pe- you know, it was stiff upper lip. British don't talk about mm-hmm. it, and the amount of illnesses like he died at 46 of a heart attack and he was the last one of his squadrons um and that's so young and it's but it's because they're never taught when they come home how to decompress how to deal with what they've done and what they've seen it's just like yes it's over now get on with your life well how do they get on with their lives they're not the same people that went to war and we really have to help um, a soldier, a veteran that's coming back, adjust to life uh, through different eyes, don't they? Because they're they're not going to be the same people. No, they're not. And we were very fortunate, I think, when we returned from that deployment in oh six oh seven, because we transitioned back from the Middle East on on ship. We were on U.S. U.S. Navy ships. So we did have a little bit of time to, you know, to decompress in the in the safety of of the massive amphibious ship that was was taking us back home. And what was interesting too is while that those weeks and weeks on ship went by, I I never really heard any gratuitous gratuitous stories of killing or destruction or death. And and I suppose I I expected to overhear the Marines telling stories like you said, a bravado of fighting as we as we went home, but they were relatively absent from the conversation of routine shipboard gossip and I think most had already at that point, Sarah, been tucking that away yeah. of what we had seen and what we had done and, and nobody was really ready to talk about it, which again validates my my position of the timing of telling the story yeah. of not only the ability for the Marines to share their story, but also the, the, the relevancy of it now of what is going on in the Middle East. Right. Um, so we did have a little time to decompress and uh, to tell their story and to still stay so connected over a decade since we fought together has been just amazing. Well, you're not just telling their story. I'm I'm sure that, you know, so many other vets that are going to be looking at this, you know, even combat soldiers that are still very much engrossed right now and go, that could be my story. And the benefit of you, as you said earlier, the fact that it's written some years after a different perspective, a different view, a different openness and honesty to it, gives the you know the current soldier or other vets that have been going through it a different way to look at it. And I think it will become a book that will become a guideline, you know, a guideline mm-hmm. of um, what you went through, but how it's affected people, how they've also come to terms with it and, and how they're living now because I don't think there is too much out there on how how do I go from 
you know, from from living zero to sixty in 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 a second, um, to coming back into mainstream life and doing the humdrum of life with all of this, I'm still carrying, and it's people need to know how to tell their story. They need mm. to know how to process it, not just cut, you know put it away. Yes, it will come out when you're ready, but it's not only to come out when you're ready, it's who should it come out to. I've had the honor of interviewing an awful lot of vets here under the Bravo 748 series and uh, and also the Green Zone series, and I'm about to do a, a combat um, a radio series with uh, the Green Zone where we're going to be talking to vets mm-hmm. that haven't decompressed yet, that have literally just come back. They're still in that transitional mode, and we're going to be getting different stories from them. And it's We've got to be willing to listen. We've got to be willing. No judgment. No, well, you've just got to get up and do, guys. No, half the time is if we can get them to tell their story without any reaction other than that of love and support, it gives them that way to be able to tell it, release it, and come to terms with it as opposed to suppressing it because nobody wants to know, right? No, that's, I agree. And as a member of Bravo 748 and and uh, that, that great organization that Jamie Burton put together, it, it is another outlet for uh, veterans to be able to share their stories. Yes. And not not every story is is like mine. Right. I'm, I'm I'm a very small percentage. Um, and, and Echo and Ramadi, again, it, it's a story that does read like a novel because it it, it tells of all of the emotion and pain, but. When I finished the book, I thought ultimately it will serve as another portal for my guys to heal. And they are a very small percentage. And it's a little little known fact that of all the people that deploy to combat zones, the guys who are in the infantry are, are a small percentage. And within that small percentage of infantry Marines, the guys that are the, the door kickers and the, the guys that are squeezing the, the triggers on the rifle, even a smaller fraction of them actually see combat. There's a very small percentage that even squeeze the trigger mm-hmm. and have to experience that intense emotion of having to enact their training and, and take another human life. It, it's, it, it's, it's very small, but through the book, through the network and through you know, great speaking organizations like Bravo 748, those stories can be told. Yes. And I think they all serve as some some sort of portal for veterans to heal. And you're right, it doesn't have to be my veterans, it doesn't have to be my Marines. It's, it's, I think it's emblematic of what all of those guys went through in, within that small percentage. And it also describes what they went through to those that never have seen that and those yeah. that will never see that those civilians or corporate leaders that really need to understand oh. how leadership is done in the worst, most hectic circumstances. Well, you know, let's look at the crude side of it. You know, while they're busy thinking, oh, I guess another war, you know, arms, uh, profit, tanks, profit, you know, this profit, um, lives <laughs> don't profit from it. And if we actually put lives ahead of everything, as the biggest currency, lives instead of everything else. I think that, you know, be a little uh, less, you know, quick on the trigger there. Uh, And also Mm -hmm. if it was, if these people that decided to send people to war were actually up front 
with their comrades on the front line as it used to be in the wars, you know, the Napoleon and Nelson, they were up front there. If they were out there fighting along with the men, would they be so quick, right? So it's That's all very good, good from the desk point, isn't it, and from the bank point. But you know, when you get that it out is there, a great point. yeah. And you know, the, I think it. You know, I think what the the nation in North America most certainly, because you know, I'm in Canada, but is the is the disappointment on that when you know a vet came home. Um, quote, broken or, you know, or um, changed in such a way that they didn't want to know. If we don't acknowledge, you know, um, the way they've come back, the war was a success. But when you look back to people with, you know, no limbs or burnt like Bobby Henline and um, and uh, broken inside or, you know, emotionally broken, um, if we don't acknowledge that, then we never acknowledge the ugly side of war. Um, that you're so quick to send people to. And if we cannot give the support to the people that are out there fighting for your freedom, then what kind of society are we? So, as I said, I'm not I'm not for war. I'm for negotiation in any way it can. Sometimes I understand a button needs to be pressed. I, a bullet needs to be shot. I understand that. But it's but you know, for the for the people that are out there willing to put their lives on the line, and it's not just you know military veterans. You know. You look at uh, police with what they see on a daily basis. And as you're saying about something go through a wall with never, you know, never shooting a, a shot, uh, for a policeman, you know, they would love to say, I can retire knowing I never shot anyone. You know, that's something they'll be proud to say because they don't want to have to shoot anybody. Mm-hmm. But look at some of the zones they're in and look. We know that some of the police there have not been conducting themselves very well at all, and they definitely need to be removed or retrained. But we've got other police that are putting themselves out there in danger every time, and they suffer the same post-traumatic stress. They suffer the same um, disillusionment with life. And we have to remember all vets, don't we? Oh, absolutely. And we stay very connected to our first responder community as well, because we understand that they deal with those same stressors as well. And they don't have sometimes the outlets um, or resources to, again, really come forward with what they're dealing with. Because at the end of the day, the stigma is still there to a large degree. And when they admit and are forthright about what they deal with, they feel a sense of job security waning and that they'll be ostracized or reassigned and and they won't be able to do what they truly love to do. And that is, whether it's in the military or whether it's in law enforcement, is protect. And that's the true spirit of what Marines do is, is in, in law enforcement. is They take care of so many people that just can't take care of themselves. And that's why we need that small segment of uh, the population is to protect those that can't take take care of themselves. I mean, they're a very unique breed of individual of the human race that are willing to do the types of things that they'll do. And I'm, I'm proud to have not only dedicated 25 years of my life to being one of those, but being associated with such brave men and women that really do so much um, that, you know, again, they will never be able to lose the permanence of what we saw in war. They'll yeah. never be able to unsee some of the worst acts of humanity or ignore the echoes of what we heard, but they will always 
and I will always have a sense of pride that we help so many people that just could not help themselves. And that, again, that is the true spirit of what Marines do. And that is the bottom line of what you're for, right? It's, it's to, Absolutely. it's indignity to give freedom to those that cannot give freedom to themselves. I mean, that's what it's all about. And, you know, to eliminate the threat and the tenury of those that will suppress others' freedoms, others' rights. And that's what it's about. Um, I did a show last week uh, with Douglas Knoll on um, de-escalate your life, and it, it's a, a wonderful tool that he's come across uh, that is that they've developed, which is um, de-escalating anger in 90 seconds. And they've been mm. working in 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 the prisons, and the turnaround that they've had in there with people being able to address their anger before the anger gets out of control or ends up in the fist fights or the knife fights or everything else. And, you know, we talked about veterans because you can understand some of them come back really angry. You know, they're, they're, they're angry for so many reasons and a lot of it the way they're being treated or they haven't learned how to de-escalate or their triggers are to, to excite that anger very quickly. And then people mm-hmm. are very quick to judge, you know, just an angry vet. But we mm-hmm. don't understand why they're so angry and we need to help them with those tools to de-escalate that so they can actually kind of look at why am I so angry or what caused that? What can I do about it? And there's so many things that we need to look at in life that we we can't just one brush, as you said before. There isn't a drug. You know, there isn't an app. There isn't a list for it. We've got to understand there is a process to healing. And we need to be there with the many tools. The one thing that I do these shows for is to interview people that are doing wonderful work in in. Um, profiling the people that have done such extraordinary things and now need other people's support, but also people that through their own lives, trial and tribulations, trauma and everything else have come up with programs, come up with tools and systems that help others through it. And that's the thing, Mm -hmm. isn't it? We're all a community and we've got to understand that we're only as good as we are when we help each other. And uh, it isn't a you, me, them. It's us. And we need to all be out there supporting each other. It's the network, Sarah, that we are very fortunate to be a part of, whether it's another mutually supporting uh, nonprofit organization or the active duty vet, um, you know, soldiers and Marines that we still stay connected to. And also uh, to mention is our Gold Star network of those families that lost uh, their Marines or soldiers on the battlefield, they are such a huge part of everything we do that we never want to forget them uh, in any endeavor because it's a quite a distinction of, of terminology when you say loss or sacrifice and you, is, is these families lost? Yes. They, they, they didn't make a decision to sacrifice like we do when we enlist or we become officers, we understand this going in. They didn't. And I am eternally grateful to be surrounded by their compassion and the the love that they continue to show me and the rest of our Marines, because they do understand that although they lost a son or a daughter, they were our brothers and sisters as well. And it's this network of support that we continue to weave into each other that, that builds this, this, this amazing fabric that's that protects us all again 
Yeah, we can't forget those you know, the families left behind, you know, just because that person isn't there anymore. The family still are and they want to be a part of that community because it's a way still connecting their son or daughter, you know, whom has unfortunately isn't there of still keeping them in that network still keep me, keeping them in that community so we we must not forget the families because the families are just as affected as this as the person that has come home or not come home um again it's it's that village we must look after our village mm-hmm. a really important, a really important thing to do now the the book isn't uh, going to be out until february 2018 is that right Correct. It's available now on Amazon uh, for pre-order sales. So if the listeners are um, wanting to buy an advanced copy, secure their copy, they can go to Amazon.com and type in Echo and Ramadi or Scott Husing. Uh, they can also visit my website, which I post updates and, and quotes at www.echoandramadi.com. Let's just and spell uh, just spell Ramadi so people know exactly how the spelling it's, is. Sure, it's Echo and Ramadi is E C H O in Ramadi R A M A D I. Right. Dot com. And everybody can find me on Facebook. Uh, follow Echo and Ramadi on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any other social media outlets. It's uh, pretty easy to find on the internet if people are interested in hearing more about the story or or any of the other organizations that I'm really proud to be affiliated with, like Save the Brave or... Yeah, how, uh, how do people become... Bravo um, uh, well, the Bravo is up here. I've got you on the posting, Bravo 748. And if you go to Bravo 748 in my search engine on selfdiscoveryradio.com, you'll come across all the interviews I've done under that umbrella. But also, please tell mm-hmm. us more about Save the Brave Foundation and how people can support that. Sure, Save the Brave is... We, you, can be, you can find us online at... SaveTheBrave.org. That's S-A-V-E-T-H-E-B-R-A-V-E dot O-R-G. And uh, again, we're a 100% nonprofit organization that is solely committed to connecting veterans through outreach programs and building strength of character for our, our veteran community, not just Marines, but all veterans um, through outreach programs. And it's, uh, it's really a great resource for our, our guys in the especially in the I, li, I live in southern california so we deal with a lot of guys locally uh, so we're very tied into the local community and stay connected and leverage all of those other smaller mutually supporting organizations uh through programs and through charity events and through outreach events it's 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 a great organization and you can be part of it you can volunteer a lot of times People want to be part of a charity. They just don't know which charity. Right. They don't know who to give to. And sometimes they think it means writing a big check. But I'm telling your listeners, if you really care and you really want to put some skin in the game, it's not about writing a check. It's volunteering your time, mm-hmm. your energy, and committing that day of your life uh, and reaching out to an organization to support veterans and just being there. Right. Just really being there and putting some skin in the game. Yeah. Um, that sometimes matters most. Well, I would imagine for a vet that's come, you know, that's been living so 
you know, on the ball, um, you know, as you said, boredom one moment, action the next, but you, they're never in the boredom, completely relaxed, you know, come back to life, you know, trying to, to get back into life, trying to have a meaningful purpose, trying to kind of continue. Um, the most important thing is, is they want a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose, right? So, you know, Absolutely. The, it's, it's, really the, it's really the absence of that friction, it's the absence yeah. of that chaos that most most veterans tend to struggle with because they don't have those outlets because many like myself that thrived since an early age on a lifestyle of high risk behavior, high risk lifestyle. When I joined the Marines at an early age uh, and enlisted, I, I saw these guys and thought to myself, man, there is no bigger group of risk takers than the United States Marine Corps. These guys are perfect for me. So I enlisted and 25 years later, uh, I was very, very fortunate after 10 deployments to uh, be talking to you today. Yeah, you know, exactly. Been, uh, yeah. But it, but that absence of chaos and that absence of the friction is really something that you you need to find a, a, a an outlet for. Yeah. And uh, I've been, again, I've been fortunate to find my own ways to not only uh, cope, uh, but articulate the importance of staying connected and staying active, whether it's through public speaking, whether it's through writing. I also find great enjoyment in mentoring other veterans who want to write and the importance yeah. of sharing their stories. I think it's vital. Yes. I think it's vital. And I was really fortunate to be invited into the Writers Guild Association in Los Angeles and Hollywood as part of the Veterans Writing Program this year where I'm working on my second book. And again, it's a group of Hollywood screenwriters and actors that are committed to helping veterans. Every Tuesday for four hours, they come together and give of their time at no cost. Right. And that's something most people wouldn't think of in a community like Hollywood that's uh, largely money-oriented. There are people out there, and again, they're putting some skin in the game and they care, and they're committing their time to training a, a large group of select veterans to hone their craft of writing and it's really it's really been amazing to be a part of that as well so again it's uh finding those outlets really connecting and, and really finding a way to to give back if, if you're one of um the listeners on the show that that want to support and want to reach out to 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 make a difference that's uh, that's how to do it. Exactly. And you know, the thing is, is, it's because of guys like you, you know, and Bravo and Green Zone, the organizations that I have been working with and more to work with to come. Um, it is because of you guys being willing to step up and say, this is our community, this who we are. We're not glorifying war, but we're celebrating the soldier of who he is now, what he what he's contributed for you, but also the inspiration, the courage and the strength that they, you know, that they are to us now. Um, nobody else would have done it. This wasn't a government program. This is you guys all getting together in support of one another. And that is the greatest example because it's not just a, you know example to other veterans uh, organizations to do this, but it's an example to everybody else out there. Form your group, form your village, be an inspiration to one another, be support with one another, be that inspiration that invites other people to be a part of it, um, because that's the greatest gift you can give ultimately, isn't it? Uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think um, anyone would... Um, 
anyone that I'm associated with, I think all understand that you know, their accomplishments in, in, in the military, especially fellow combat veterans that, that may be listening, um, they, their pre- preconceptions of what uh, war is and, and being boisterous about you know, what they endured uh, and, or if they trivialize it by reckless or immature, you know, comparisons to death and destruction loss is really wholly absent from the true spirit of what they did. And those, those, those people are few and far between. It's the guys that are committed to making a difference. And just, just as I would never boast or presuppose that we were the biggest uh, and, and, and toughest Marine unit to ever walk the face of the battlefield. There were plenty more that endured more, that suffered more, that lost more than we did. And that's not what my story is about. It's right. about being emblematic of what everyone else did. But on the flip side, Sarah, there's that same analogy can be used that there are other organizations that are doing as much, yeah. if not more, great things for our nation's veterans uh as, as we are with Save the Brave and our Gold Star families and everything we do and everything I stand committed to helping veterans um, stay connected. There used to be this false image of, you know, what perfection was and people are now beginning to see that break down just in this you know america's got talent series you know we've seen somebody who's deaf who sings from memory we've got our keshi um uh, our burn victim from a plane crash we've had, had the honor of interviewing and i interviewed her with bobby henline and, and people have come listening to that show saying i just cried the inspiration of these two um is truly you know, illuminating. And that's the thing what we are beginning to understand is by people sharing their stories. We are so inspired. We are so enlightened. We're so heartwarmed. It's not about pity. It's not about victimization. It's about inspiration on the gift of life. They may have lost A, B, and C, but they've embraced, you know, D, E, and F. And it's about what they've been given, not what they've lost, and how they choose to live life today. And that truly is inspiring. So thank you for telling your story here. In Echo and Romani. It's my pleasure. And, you know, may this, may this be, book be a, a really a great inspiration guideline for other people on exactly what veterans have gone through. And as I said, I'm glad that you've written it some years later when the perspective has been different because I think it would be far more heartfelt uh, rather than reactionary. No, I'm, proud, I'm proud to have told the story and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have if had great representation and, and been supported through Regnery Publishing um, to support this book and um, never uh, in a million years would have, have felt uh, being with such a, a prestigious publishing house uh, you know, to be treated as well as I have as a brand new writer. That, uh, I had the preconception that I'd be a small fish in a big pond, but it's been just the opposite. They're phenomenal and they are as dedicated to to telling great stories as as I am, and the, the importance of it, and they're um, they're su- they've been super supportive, and I couldn't be happier. I'm very excited to uh, move forward and uh, um, get out and continue to tell the story of Echo and Ramadi. Um, and again, it'll be uh, on the shelves on February 20th, but uh, people can pre-order it now on Amazon. 
excellent and it's echo in ramadi.com you can go and find out everything that's going on there you can also book him as a, as a guest speaker through the bravo 748 series that's bravo 78.com uh, 748.com and thank you thank you for the work that you're doing thank you for speaking out for them and just shedding new light because that's what we need and also we all need to come together it's uh, we are a human race let's be in support of one another right so Thank Absolutely, you. Sarah. Thank, thank, thank you for having me on the program today. It's been a pleasure. And um, through our conversations leading up to the program, I just want to thank you and, and thank your listeners for, for tuning in and, and supporting and, and doing everything you do to to bring light to you know, such great stories. I, I'm very grateful. Well, I as I said, uh, under the self-discovery community here, under selfdiscoveryradio.com, <laughs> you're going to see an awful lot more coming up because it's all about supporting one another, supporting humanity, because when we do, we become a better human race, and that's what we need right now. So thank you, Scott, so much for being with us here today and telling your story. And uh, to everyone else, remember... Um, their story is our story. It's just told from a different point of view. And what an inspiration they are and what gratitude we have towards them. But also to understand we're all human beings and we've all got a story. And when we're willing to share, that's when we really learn to care. So until next time, folks, bye for now.